Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are. We are. We That's are. That's right. We are. Yes, we're the Classic Gaming Brothers. And um, we just wanted to thank Steve for coming on to the show. It was fun hanging out with good old 8-Bit Steve. Happy to have him on the show. Uh, if you're uh, listening to this show, Steve, thanks. And uh, thank you for leaving the studio in a cleaner state than it was when you arrived. Thank you very much, Steve, uh, for playing along with that long-running joke. Wow, way to make fun of our studio. I know. Well, we just have a messy studio. It makes me very sad. (laughs) Well, maybe if you cleaned up some things and did your share. Yeah, maybe if I did. Well, we're excited to talk about things in this episode, and you would know what things we were talking about if you could read. Now, Zach. Yes, Seth. What have you been recently been playing? Seth, recently I've been playing a uh, quite the odd game. It's called Shrek Prezessen. What? Yes. Uh, Shrek Prezessen is a game created by a company called Syntax, and it was released in... The box says 2001, but the box also says it was copyright Nintendo, which is not true because this is a bootleg game. Huh. Anyway, Shrek Prezessen is a, uh, a a game created by Syntex Technology Company, which is a company that exists in um, China. It was originally founded in Taichung, Taiwan, and they moved to Jiangmen City, China. So they went from Taiwan to the mainland. And the games are awful. They're all pretty much the exact same style of platformer. So they built one engine and they just copy and paste stolen assets onto that engine. In Shrek Prezessen, they use Shrek assets. So it's Shrek. And Prezessen is actually a misspelling of Princessen, which is the German word for princess. Again, their games are all pretty much the same. They uh, use the same type of gameplay. They have the same type of music, which is stolen music from other games. And uh, this one is not an exception, except it has Shrek in it, so it's fun. Interestingly enough about Syntax Games, Seth, is that they have very strict copy protection on them, which is weird when you are talking about the fact that it's a bootleg game. Right. But it is so strict, in fact, that when I plugged in my copy of Shrek Prezessen into my Nintendo DS, which has a slot for the Game Boy Advance, it did not load. In fact, uh, the, the Game Boy Advance... Or the, in fact, the Nintendo DS did not recognize it as a game, which was interesting. And I thought the cartridge might have been broken, but I, I talked to someone who is actually kind of really the only expert I know in in dumping these games. They're a user named uh, Taizo. They're uh, on Twitter, and um, I, I talked to them through Discord. But they were saying that the Syntax games don't always run through Nintendo DS hardware. It's kind of a mixed bag, but they almost will certainly always work on original hardware. So what I did was buy a Nintendo Game Boy Advance and I tested the game and it works. So uh, now I have a Game Boy Advance and I totally didn't buy it just to test one game. That is kind of bad. Another interesting thing about Syntax games is that due to the copy protection, they are very hard to dump onto the internet, meaning that if you do find a ROM of one, it might not run well in a emulator, which is the topic for today. So it's very fitting that we are, I mentioned Shrek. There is an available ROM of of Shrek Possessant. It is out there. It's floating around in the the Aether, um, though it is slightly modified to run in emulators but anyway that's the game i've been recently playing that's uh 
It's a ridiculous story. I <laughs> and you probably should have gone second if we're going to lead an emulator since I have not been playing Shrek Possession nor have any desire to play it. I've been playing a game that I think I've talked about before on this show. It's called Shadow Tactics Blades of the Shogun. Uh, it was released by Mimi Mimi Me Games, M I M I M I Games, December 6th of 2016. It's a uh, tactical stealth game set in Japan around the Edo period. Essentially this shogun takes over japan and enforces a peace which i guess is a kind of like counterintuitive but it, it works for a little while eventually there is uh you know rebellions and all that so he recruits uh, a number of specialists to work with him to crack down on all this rebellion so you play through the game as five specialists that have uh, awesome skills and abilities, such as the samurai who's in charge of the team named Mugen, who is a very powerful character who can take on multiple guards at once, though is uh, kind of slow. And uh, he's not able to, he's only able to like climb up ladders. He can't like climb up like vines and stuff like that. There's uh, Hayato, who is a ninja, who is my favorite, and uh, he can move silently he can stab people he can throw shurikens uh he's just pretty much awesome there is also aiko who is a former geisha and is a camouflage master and she can kind of blend in so that she doesn't attract attention to the the guards there is yuki who is a, a young girl who can place traps she's like a street urchin and she can set decoys and she has a little whistle that attracts guards to where she is it's very useful probably my second favorite character is yuki it's hayato and yuki who are my my favorite and then finally there is uh takuma who is a uh, old man and he has a sniper rifle that is his peg leg and he has a little creature that can also distract people uh it's a great game i got pretty far in it but lately i've been just like crushing it because they released an expansion pack which is why i'm trying to get through the game because i'm and that's why it's my recently played because they released a standalone expansion called Ico's Choice, uh, which just came out uh, the end of last year. And I'm looking to beat Shadow Tactics, which I'm very close to beating it. I'm only a few missions off from the end. And then once I beat Shadow Tactics, I will go to Ico's Choice. And then once I beat Ico's Choice, if I still need to scratch my stealth strategy game uh, desire, I will go back to playing Desperados 3 or Desperados III as uh, otherwise known. Yeah, so that's what I've been recently been playing. That's exciting. It is exciting. Nice. Well, today we are um, talking about a topic that we alluded to already, and that topic is emulators and emulation, but uh, primarily emulators, um, which is kind of an interesting rabbit hole that we could go into. Oh, yeah, We for are sure. going to go into. And uh, before we begin, we'll we'll ask the, the age-old question. Uh, Seth, do you have any memories of emulators? Ah, emulators and I have a, a fun relationship because emulators became popular in the 90s and I became a child in the 90s. So that's true. When I was a young child, I did not have my own money because I did not have a job because I was under the age of employment. <laughs> So I would have to get things from my parents, as young children often would, or I would have to figure out how to play things other ways. And I was introduced 
emulators as a way of playing things outside of buying them. <laughs> My first interaction with emulators uh, was with the uh, the No Money Game Boy or the No Cash Game Boy. Um, I believe I think it's, it's. I think it's No Cash. Yeah, Zach says no cash. I say no money. Either way, it's no dollar sign Game Boy. Objectively, that's the worst name for it. No dollar sign Game Boy. <laughs> no dollar sign Game Boy. Now, as a kid, I uh, I, I didn't have a Game Boy, uh, but all my friends had Game Boys. And there's something else that came out in the, uh, the 90s, and that was Pokemon. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, so Pokemon came out in 98. Seth had no Game Boy in 98. I don't even know if I had a Game Gear in 98. But I, to this day, I actually uh, never owned a Game Boy. I've owned, I guess, Game Boy adjacent things. And I've owned like retro handhelds. So I can play like Game Boy games on the go. I just have never, I never owned a Game Boy. So I, I was missing out on Pokemon. However, I discovered the No Money Game Boy and emulated uh, Pokemon ROMs somehow they ended up on my computer i don't know how but i was able to play through uh pokemon red blue yellow and i even played green with uh it was uh translated as well so which i'm for those who don't know green is just blue isn't it i think it's slightly different but i'm not sure i don't know if i i played either green or red i ended up beating red but yeah so i ended up having many memories of playing pokemon though i still wasn't in on the uh action because i didn't have a game boy so i didn't have a link cable so i couldn't trade pokemon so i had to trade pokemon with myself which is kind of sad in retrospect but i was able to still experience the pokemon game at the time which is as any video gamer could tell you part of enjoying a video game is playing the video game when it is relevant so yeah so those are my uh my memories of uh emulators i've also used uh, snes 9x and also um moopin 64 did you use nesticle i may have used nesticle i definitely played moopin 64 it played Zelda Ocarina of Time in the computer lab. I had it on a portable flash drive, like mm-hmm. a jump drive. Yeah. And I would plug it into the computer labs and I would open up and play Legends of Zelda on the computer labs computer because it was installed on my jump drive. So I didn't need admin to install it on the computer labs and of course i've played through a lot on the uh, snes 9x most of my snes time has been on the snes 9x i would say versus being on an actual snes so yeah i have a lot of experience with emulators what about you my experience with emulators actually comes from you seth because i think at some point either i got a hold of that jump drive or i got a hold of a a, a cd rom that you had burnt or someone you knew had burnt and gave to us that had some emulators on it uh, yeah i remember uh, uh, SNES 9X was on it. I remember Gens was on it. One of the with Sega Genesis ones. There was a NES one, and there was I think a Game Boy one. And that's kind of how I experienced playing games like Pokemon and various other games that we didn't own. Uh, primarily right. Super any uh, primarily Super Nintendo games, which we didn't own a Super Nintendo. We had the family friend that had one, but it allowed me to play things like the X Men. I think there was an X Men game on the Super Nintendo that was like a, a beat 'em up. There was also like donkey kong country and stuff like that what yeah. i do remember though is on one of these collection of games was somari the adventurer which was the first time i'd ever played a bootleg game and it was oh, on, on one fun. of these cds i don't know if you were cognizant that you had a bootleg game in that collection I, I assume you just grabbed a bunch of roms from someone uh and and that was in the batch but yeah that was the first time i ever played a bootleg was uh through that cd i played somari well that's fun i'm glad that i could inspire you 
to have a love of bootlegs and Sumari. Yeah, yeah. You, you gave me a ho- hobby that I spend money on. And that hobby originated from my inability to spend money. Yeah, perfect. I had no money, so that's why I had to use No Money Game Boy. Now, emulation and... Uh, so emulation generally is delayed to wh- how new hardware uh, comes out. So as new hardware releases, there's not immediately an emulator, mostly because the way that an emulator works and essentially how it takes the software that it's receiving and translates it to a CPU. But as we kind of reach this point where modern consoles are getting to be equivalent to PCs, the need to emulate versus versus just hoarding the game to the PC is is really far outstripping the need to build emulators. I don't think there's an actual emulator for the PS4. Yeah, I think that's still one of the, I think, uh, emulators that has had issues getting off the ground in terms of development. I believe, so there is a there is a need for emulators when there's like, I guess, gated content. So if you want to play a Switch only or a PlayStation only game, you need to be able to get an emulator if you want to play it on your computer or wherever you have your emulators running. But in my opinion, uh, I feel like as games become as consoles become more computer-like and games continue to get ported to multiple systems, there's no real need for me, at least, and, and maybe you as as well, of playing a game just not on native, like a native computer, right? <laughs> like if it's going to be, if there's a game that's coming out for the PS5 and also the PC, and you only have a PC, just get the game on the PC or find a version of the game on the PC. You don't have to like emulate a PS5 to then play a PC game on it. But there's always going to be a an era of video game consoles from the 80s through to the early 2000s that will always have a market for emulation. A major a big reason of that is because many of those consoles used cartridges. So if you get a Sega Genesis game, you have to pull the information off that cartridge if you want to use it on a computer and then you need something to interpret that information information and that thing that you interpret that information with is an emulator now an interesting fun fact about emulators though i guess not interesting fun fact but uh, an interesting thing that's happening now is as computers get smaller and cheaper and faster with the current chip shortage aside emulation also brings the ability to create home arcade systems and creating dedicated retro machines where you can play all your older games independently of any other household system in place such as a gaming computer when i was growing up my only real option to have an emulator was on the home computer now with things like uh, the raspberry pi uh, you can have a mini computer essentially built into a housing that looks like maybe a, a, a tabletop arcade cabinet and you can kind of build your own entertainment system outside of your computer which previously was not attainable and previously being like 20 years ago so like personally i have a, a retro arcade machine that looks like a tabletop arcade cabinet uh, that was 3D printed and has a Raspberry 4 that is housed in it and it can run on easily a lot of the classic uh, emulators. I also have a RG355 350. I have an RG351V, which is a portable retro machine that is capable of emulating a number of simpler 8-bit and 16-bit systems for retro gaming on the go, which is these systems wouldn't work without emulation. So if you like having these type of 
abilities to play retro games, you can thank emulation for it. Uh, emulators are also not just for video games and are often used to run legacy software on modern hardware. In the early days of computing, this was commonly done to run software that was not compatible with newer systems. Beyond this, people often use emulation-based devices to run software or hardware on systems that otherwise would not be compatible with the software or hardware, such as a DOS-compatible cards that would be installed in Centris or Performa Macintosh computers and allow them to run PC software, or DOSBox that is an emulator for DOS and allows video games that you can purchase to run on modern day computers through DOS. Right, but outside of video games from a historic precedent in emulation, emulation was very important because there was a period of time where you could buy four different computers on the market and none of them would be compatible with each other. Right. So thus you needed something like emulation in order to have compatibility. Yeah, I think as we as we always build technology, there's a need for technology to be able to talk to not technology that wouldn't otherwise talk to. Yeah. Um, I think there's always going to be a need for that. Now, throughout this episode, we'll be talking about emulators and their history and what they're capable of doing. Emulators generally use files that are known as ROM files. ROM is uh, an acronym for read-only memory and are extracted from cartridges. There are also emulators that uh, emulated consoles that use CDs, and thus they would use CD images instead of ROMs. Um, Those are known as ISOs. They're called ISOs mostly because of the International Standardization Organization and having CD images or an optical image be essentially built to an ISO standard and that's why they're called ISOs and generally how CD images today are referred to as ISOs. I believe DVD burned DVDs are also referred to as ISOs as well. There's also like some earlier CDs might use a bin.cue format, which is uh, like two separate files that might get extracted when you try to rip them. Um, now, we should say, Seth and I are not going to advocate going on the internet and downloading ROMs from like untrusted uh, places, uh, mostly because one, that's bordering on illegal, <laughs> and two, it's just not the best thing to do with our time. You could get a virus on your computer, uh, you could be downloading something that is not necessarily legal in terms of the copyrights and stuff on it or you you know it's just not something that seth and i are going to actively promote however we will talk about the history (laughs) because that's what we do yeah and emulators aren't illegal yes and we'll talk about why emulators are not illegal because there is some interesting uh precedent to that but um uh, and there is um free where available yes yeah ROMs. yeah so there, there are there are also plenty of homebrews and free roms and roms that you can purchase um a lot of homebrew developers will sell roms on their website or on places like itch.io or game jolt or something like that um you can find stuff like that available heck i'm pretty sure if you buy like a preloaded arcade set system like the one that seth's talking about sometimes it'll even come with just like uh like freeware or homebrew roms um some of the ones that are available um, that you get from more legit sources. In any case, the rise in popularity of emulation really came across in the 90s, which was, of course, Seth's time growing up and my time being born. During this time, CPU speeds were starting to really get fast enough to actually be able to emulate the hardware of earlier game consoles through software. Software emulation, even though it is similar, should not be confused with hardware emulation. The emulators that we're going to talk about are primarily software-based. The difference is that software 
hardware emulation acts as the hardware of the console it is looking to emulate. So the idea is that there is a code that is written on your computer that you run, usually through an executable, and that code will interpret the ROM or ISO or bin file, and it will interpret that as if the console is reading it like an actual, like you stick your cartridge in and it reads it out. These emulators tend to be easier to develop. However, there is a trade-off with them as you are essentially taking instructions for one machine and changing them to be interpreted by another machine, which does require a significant investment in resources from the computer. So the more complex the console gets, the greater the resource is required, and this will lead to games slow down, sometimes even to an unplayable state. Also, if the emulator is poorly optimized, you'll likely experience slowdown. N64 portable emulators, for example, like the ones that are available on like Seth's device that he has, often have optimization issues due to the N64 emulators still being fairly still in development, a lot of them. I mean, most of them run pretty great on like your standard computer, but if you try to run like a Raspberry Pi or like a portable device, you'll often run into issues. Hardware emulation um, works through a variety of different means, but one way is through something called a Feel Programmable Gate Array, or FPGA. Uh, not all hardware emulation is done through FPGAs, but FPGAs are kind of considered the like, that's like what you want. When you're emulating your hardware, you want FPGAs. What happens with an FPGA is that the hardware itself will mimic the instructions as long as it has the capability to, and will thus be able to emulate systems on a one-to-one -one basis. Uh, this works great for earlier systems, pretty much up until the 16-bit era, though once you get into more modern gaming, there's just not a lot of FPGA cores that are available, cores being the actual code that is used to tell the FPGA chip what to do, um, and the lack of these cores means you don't necessarily have things like, there's not an FPGA for N64, and there's not an FPGA for like PlayStation 2 and stuff like that. Yeah, at the time of recording. At the time of recording, who knows, maybe tomorrow FPGA for N64 will be announced. <laughs> yeah, there's a big community behind FPGA. Uh, there's the Mr. Project that's out there. Um, so there's constant work that's being in this scene. And so maybe we'll see some really good N64 PSX type stuff come out soon. Yeah, there's also a company like Analog, which will produce things like the Mega SG or the Super NT, which are FPGA based consoles that take cartridges. So the Mega SG is for uh, the Sega Genesis. It's one I have where it's FPGA based. You drop in your cartridge and it plays the game up to like 1080p. Beautiful game. One problem you may get with hardware emulation that isn't FPGA is compatibility issues. There is a company called Hyperkin that puts out some consoles that either emulates the hardware of a game system in some manner or provides software emulation. Their systems often have compatible issues with games that use unique chipsets and some even homebrews have some issues with a Hyperkin product. This is also the case with bootleg game consoles such as numerous amounts of Famicom clones or Fami clones like the Dendi or Micro Genius. While they may be able to run most games fine, they may encounter compatibility issues. Uh, interestingly enough, though, uh, because developers of bootleg games often could only use clone hardware to test their games, there are cases where bootleg games will not work well on either emulators or real hardware, and some NES emulators often have a Dendi mode as a potential setting you can use, so you can play 
these bootleg games on your essentially bootleg hardware. The 90s also had another factor that led to the popularity of emulation, and that's the rise of the modern evolution of the internet. With the internet becoming more and more readily available and more and more people coming online and websites being built out to create the ecosystem that we live in today, people were able to share files with each other as well as advice and collaborate across the world in creating the emulation scene. In fact, the emulation community discovered that Nintendo has different games for different regions and they discovered Nintendo's censorship policies where they take one game released in Japan, they take that same game and they take a bunch of stuff out of it and release it in North America. Also, there were games that were just developed for other regions and never ported to other markets, such as a Japanese exclusive RPG that was never brought to the US market, like uh, like Five Alive. Thus, the growth began into uh, ROM hacking and fan translation. We actually go into detail into ROM hacking in episode 63. You can think of episode 63 as the companion episode to this episode. It's been a long time since I've listened to it, so there it may kind of line up but so if you want to learn more uh, um rom hacking you can head back to the uh, into the archives and listen to that episode for the purpose of this episode just take away that we wouldn't have rom hacking or fan translated games without emulation now the thing with emulators and with pretty much all software is if it's out there someone's going to try to sell it so let's talk about some commercial emulators emulators that were released in stores on shelves uh, it, it, these are beyond the emulators that you could find online these were emulators that yeah you could buy now outside of companies like hyperkin which make these hardware emulation devices there were some companies back in the 90s that were producing software emulation one of these was a company called bleem which released a product called bleem and another was a company called connectix which released the virtual game station the virtual game station or vgs was created by aaron giles for the company Connectix. Giles previously worked on ports of Windows games to Macintosh. The idea of emulation was appealing to him. He'd actually apparently previously dabbled in some types of emulation before. And it's also what I've read, uh, apparently later he would go on to become part of the development team for MAME, which is a popular arcade emulator. Now, there's an issue with emulation. And this is an issue that VGS faced and also Bleem faced. Most emulators can be built in pretty much any type of language you can think of. Bleem, for example, was built in assembly. Uh, VGS, I think, was also constructed mostly in assembly. However, after programming everything you can into this emulator, you're going to be missing something. The BIOS. A BIOS, or a basic input-output system, is a type of firmware that provides the system with often necessary code for things like booting or initializing of the hardware. You may be able to build a PlayStation from off-the-shelf parts, but if you don't have a BIOS, chip, you wouldn't be able to get it to play games. Giles had a copy of the PlayStation BIOS, but he got it online and not legitimately. So this allowed them to test the software, but if they wanted to sell it, they would actually need to find a way to do so without copyright infringement. So Giles worked with Sony initially to see if they could find a way to license the BIOS. But Sony didn't want to offer that up. And instead, Giles tried to find an, a way to run the software without the BIOS. And he did. 
So Giles was able to actually reverse engineer the PlayStation BIOS almost completely from scratch, literally by looking at the BIOS and rewriting the code to get it to do what it needed to do. And that created the Connectix Virtual Game Station, which was promoted at Macworld by Steve Jobs and was released in 1999. Sony quickly took them to court and they actually, Sony lost the lawsuit. Before the lawsuit was lost, a judge did grant Sony a temporary injunction. Now, due to the temporary injunction, Connectix wasn't able to sell the software. Sony then purchased the VGS since nobody was going to sell the Connectix and people, retailers just took it off their shelf because of the injunction. Sony bought the VGS from Connectix and promptly discontinued it. <laughs> yeah, because if you, if you can't stop it through a lawsuit, you stop it through money. <laughs> now, meanwhile, Bleem was developed by the Bleem company uh, and Bleem is stylized as B-L-E-E-M exclamation point. Bleem the company was primarily two people, David Hero Pleischmer and Randy Linden. They wanted to create software that could run PlayStation games on their PC or their Sega Dreamcast, and they wanted to do this in a way that was legal. They also wanted to create an emulator that was better than the Connectix VGS, uh, and to do this, they wanted to make use of PC's 3D graphics hardware for rendering. While the VGS was cool emulator, it wasn't 100% compatible with the entire Sony library. Bleem wanted to make that happen. So they got to work on it. And uh, their idea was that using the 3D graphics hardware would allow for not only better resolution, but alter also filtered textures, which you couldn't get on real hardware. Thus meaning potentially playing a PlayStation game on Bleem would look better than playing a PlayStation game on real hardware. They got to work on Bleem and eventually Bleem was released and it was actually designed to be copy proof. Now the emulator itself could be downloaded, but you needed a CD to actually run it. So you had to have a Bleem CD that you put in your drive and that's what would detect that you had a legitimate copy of Bleem. And you actually needed PlayStation discs to play Bleem. You couldn't just download ISOs off the internet. Not that you'd want to in 1990s, like that would probably take you a few hours, but like you did need to have actual PlayStation discs. This copy protection, while great, only lasted about two weeks before it was completely cracked and Bleem was made available to anyone who wanted it. Now, Sony did what Sony did for the VGS and they sued again. They also lost again. However, before they lost, they were given a premium preliminary injunction due to Sony's concern that Bleem ads used Sony screenshots. Bleem appealed, claiming that the use of copyright material was in fair use and that appeal was successful. However, Bleem was being removed from stores due to this preliminary injunction. Bleem also released their Bleemcast during this time, which allows you to play some PS1 games on your Dreamcast. The way this worked was that you would insert a Bleemcast disc designed for a specific game such as Metal Gear Solid, Gran Turismo 2, or Tekken 3, and then you would, after putting in the Bleemcast disc, you would insert the respective PlayStation 1 disc. I should say, those three games, that's not such as. Those are the only three Bleemcast ah. games available. Metal Gear Solid, Gran Turismo 2, or Tekken 3. You had a primary game, a sequel to a game, and the trilogy of the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it starts in Metal Gear Solid, then you get in a car and you do some racing, and then you Beat end up, up just guys. beating people up. <laughs> it's a story told in three acts. 
Sony, having lost their first suit against Bleem, uh, sued them again. <laughs> because if you can't win it once, try it again. Uh, this lawsuit meant that Bleem faced further financial issues and had to stop production of their other Bleemcast titles, hence only three. Sony reportedly even threatened retailers selling Bleem products, forcing many of them to pull the Bleem software from their shelves. Bleem would go out of business in 2001 due to legal fees. Essentially, Sony sued them out of business. Their website featured a sad Sonic the Hedgehog holding a flower next to a Bleem gravestone, which they would have to later remove because Sonic is a property of Sega and they would have sued them too. (laughs) Despite the overall lack of success for either the VGS or Bleem, both of them not even really being able to hold a a retail space location. They serve as precedent in emulation history as they helped cement the laws around emulation to this day. Primarily, that as long as an emulator doesn't use copyrighted code, it would be legal to create and use. Games, on the other hand, are a different story. But that's why people can make RG350 51 V's in China and sell them in the American market without any issues. And they, you know, it's, you could sell any sort of emulator. You just can't put games on it. That's arguably why you have things like the Retron 5 by Hyperkin, which is an emulation based machine. Or, uh, for example, uh, there are plenty of emulation based machines that you can just find, like, you know, like sets handheld, but also just other uh, places. I mean, people sell dedicated RetroPie like setups. Now, we talked about the commercial emulators, but emulators obviously are not something that are just sold commercially. You can find tons of emulators on the internet. Uh, so we're now going to focus on the emulators that you can find online, most of them for free. It, it, there are emulators for everything at this point that you could find to get to work on your computer retroarch makes finding emulators probably the easiest because it is constantly updated and it has tons of available like different cores and stuff that work with it so you can just load any game you want into retroarch and it will like assign the emulator that's appropriate and you're good to go and a core is the emulator that's running that particular game to keep things streamlined we're going to focus on nes game boy genesis and uh, Super Nintendo, because those are the, the heavy hitters. However, uh, we, we do want to mention that one of the first non-commercial emulators that was released was C64S, which was an emulator that emulates a Commodore 64 so that people can play Commodore 64 games on their 286 IBM PCs in the early 90s. 286, that was before 486. These were like, yes. these were slow computers that you were but running. you could please play your Commodore games. Because uh, we're keeping up with the Commodore. Now, the NES had a number of emulators created for it. One of the first being the family computer emulator V0.35 and the Pasofami. Both of these were initially released on the FM Towns, which is a Japanese PC variant that used originally proprietary software, eventually became uh, IBM PC compatible. The family computer emulator was made by Hiroshi Yudagawa and released in 1990 and was only capable of running incredibly basic NES games like Donkey Kong. It probably could not run Castlevania 3, which is a very complex NES game. The Family was released in 1993 and had basic sound emulation. 
and was eventually ported to Windows in 1995. Then, there was Landiness by Alex Kravitsky, where um, there was a public release in 1996 called Pre-Release Stupid Version, and it supported some basic games but did have some graphical glitches. However, it was hosted on an FTP site, so when that site went down, so did all versions of the emulator on the internet. Meaning... It is gone. Yeah, it is actually lost media. It was never archived. So the FTP site went defunct and uh, Landy Ness went away. And you know what that means? You should always back up your folders and stuff. Don't keep everything in an FTP. Don't keep everything in one place. Make sure you have backups. So Merit Fazulian, who was another developer, would take Landy Ness and actually create something called INES or Interness and start using Ness headers, which are actually really crucial to NES emulation. Um, that's actually something that shows up in the, the bootleg scene that I'm involved in, is a lot of bootleg games use like really bizarre headers that aren't common in, in like just common games that you find off the shelf. So emulators have to constantly go through updates to support obscure headers to allow certain games to be played. INES was, was released in 1996. Another NES emulator, NESA, and a Another one called Nesticle both came out afterwards and were some of the first free emulators with Nessa actually publishing its own source code, meaning you could grab the Nessa source code, uh, compile your own version of Nessa or just tweak it and make a whole new thing. Uh, these came out around 1997. And then finally, there was an emulator for the Sega Genesis that Yuji Naka worked on but never released. But he just thought it would be cool to emulate a Nintendo on a Sega. <laughs> Marat Fazuliad uh, also worked on an emulator for Game Boy called Virtual Game Boy or the VGB and was one of the first known Game Boy and Game Boy Color emulators that could actually run. Uh, it came out in 1996. Then, of course, there was No Money Game Boy for DOS in 1997. And then Game Boy Color was added in 1998. Humorously enough, you could get Game Boy Color by giving them money. The Genesis started with an emulator that was just called Mega Drive. It, it was released in 1994. It could run Sonic the Hedgehog, but it ran very, very slowly, which is not what you want for your Sonic the Hedgehog experience. Love it. It also didn't have any sound and had many, many glitches. Fortunately, uh, the author was not able to modify it to fix it because their hard drive died and with it the source code too. So uh, unfortunately, we will never see the Mega Drive emulator to fruition. So always remember folks to back up your files. Uh, Gen EM came out in 1996 and the DOS version of the emulator had basic sound emulation, which is pretty cool. Gen Syst was released in 1997 and became very popular since it was one of the more early Genesis emulators that was widely used and, and sent around across the uh, the globe as it were. And in around the 1998, KGen was released, which would eventually evolve into Kega Fusion, which is still the Genesis emulator of today, so 2022. So obviously they keep updating it and it's pretty solid when it comes to emulation. That also happens in the world of emulation. Once an emulator becomes a really good emulator, it becomes like the market leader. <laughs> and like, it, even though most emulators are free, most people just use the same, like people don't experiment with other emulators. They just use the one that works the best. <laughs> 
I mean, I still use Kega, which has been around forever. Like, my version of Kega on my computer is the one I downloaded back when I was in middle school. <laughs> now, the earliest Super Nintendo emulator was called VSMC. It was released in 1994 and was really only able to run some homebrew games. It was later updated with support for some commercial titles, um, such as Final Fantasy IV. Another early one was Super Passofami. This was developed by the same person who gave us the NES Passofami emulator. However, Super Passofami had some issues, such as deleting your Windows directories. <laughs> One problem with early Super Nintendo emulators was that they just lacked proper sound emulation, but one of the first ones to fix this problem was called eSNES. However, eSNES was very slow, so they merged with another emulator called NLKSNES to create NLKE, which was both fast and had sound. <laughs> Two other emulators also merged around 1996-1997. These were SNES 96 and SNES 96. They merged to create SNES 9X, which is like one of the best SNES emulators to this day. It runs well, great sound emulation. I currently have SNES 9X on my computer. But that's emulation. Uh, a long, complicated history filled with lawsuits, sorrow, bankrupt companies, but... Happy classic gaming brothers. That's right. Because you know what? Despite the lawsuits and the and the the complicated legal proceedings, we still got emulators to play around with to this day. That's right. And I you know, I bought a lot of games with cash. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we're going to get into the buy, wait, pass segment of this episode. Seth, I'm going to go first. Your game, should you choose to accept it, is an interesting game. Uh, you are someone who works for someone else. Uh, you aid them with their task. And in, in during this uh, job of yours, um, sometimes you're left alone doing the task um, that you are aiding this person with um, as part of your own work. And the truth is, while you may be alone, you're alone with the dead because they are always around you. Are you interested in this game? Uh, sure. You've already played this game, Seth. It's Mortuary Assistant. Mortuary Assistant is to be announced 2022, developed by Darkstone Digital and published by Dread XP. We're going to uh, take a short break while I do some research. So we're back. So uh, the Mortuary Assistant uh, is a, a a solo game. Dark Zone Digital is uh, one guy named Brian, and we we actually we didn't meet Brian, but we did go to his booth uh, at PAX when we went to PAX, the Dread XP booth. Uh, we were there. I'm gonna put this game down as a wait. I had a lot of fun playing it when it was. Uh, we had the demo of it during some demo festival on Steam. It was hilarious. I caveat that with it's a horror game. So don't think me saying it's hilarious is it's a funny game for you to buy. If you don't like horror games, you may want to second guess this choice. I think horror games are hilarious when I play with somebody else or stream and have somebody watching me with it. Like when I play like a single player with Zach and Zach can watch it or we could play the game together somewhat. I don't particularly like horror games when I play by myself because I get scared easily. But I don't get scared easily 
when I have somebody there that I have to be brave for. So the Mortuary Assistant I'm going to put down as a wait, um, mostly because I will probably be interested in buying this game when I think it's going to be released, which will be in October. So when I get into the spooky season, maybe we'll do a spooky stream and maybe we'll play some Mortuary Assistant. So I'll put it down as a wait. Are you ready for yours, Zach? I am. Your game actually came out last year, 2021. Uh, so it is not necessarily a upcoming game, but it is a new-ish game. Got it. Uh, it's a game that I learned about today. So I learned about a game where you play in a game where you have an honest job and that honest job is pretty monotonous except for when uh, this event happens and you have to track down your charge as it were and bring it back and punish the person who stole your charge are you uh interested in what it is oh uh, yes yes i am it's uh death's door it was released july 20th of 2021 developed by acid nerve and published by devolver digital where you uh reap souls of the dead and uh try and track down the person who stole a soul that you're in charge of all right we're gonna take i'm gonna take a quick look at this game and we'll be right back we're back death store it looks like a very cute game uh, in terms of graphics though it also looks like a very intense game in terms of gameplay i just really like the aesthetic it's got kind of a uh almost cartoony vibe to it that reminds me a lot of like legend of zelda but also does have kind of a more dark tone to it in terms of your character and combat and stuff like that but it does look very interesting and I'm, i am interested in it i'm gonna put it down as a wait because i have a lot of games that are like this that are currently on my like shelf that i I need to play primarily like tunic and stuff which I I do want to get through and before I invest a lot of time into another RPG game which is what this is um I I do want to get through a bit of my backlog and then eventually I will most likely buy this game because it does look fun but I'm gonna put it on my watch list I'm gonna keep an eye on it nice nice well that's it that's gonna be our classic gaming brother episode and thank you all for joining us on this adventure talking about emulation we always appreciate the uh the listen and the support if you want to listen to us on other things than whatever you're listening to us on now we are available on most podcasting applications you can always send us a, an email if you want to give us feedback about an episode you can send us an email at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com we also have many social medias that you can follow and like facebook instagram and twitch are at classic gaming brothers and our twitter is cg brothers pod i have and i will put a stake in this i will be sometime this month of may i will be updating the website so you can feel nice. free to check that out at classicgamingbrothers.com and we always appreciate likes reviews and all that stuff anyway uh zach is there anything else that i uh, left out don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been zach and i've been seth we've been the classic gaming brothers that's right. right. You know, a great place to play emulated games, archive.org does actually yeah. have like a digital arcade that you can uh, like play games on their website. Yeah, directly. There's another one too, but I've, I've forgotten. Yeah.